So this morning, as we turn our attention to God's Word, we're focusing on Enoch. Now, this is not Enoch, the son of Cain, that we read briefly about last week. This is actually Enoch, who is in the line of Seth, Adam and Eve's next son. And he's actually mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke. And so this is Enoch in Genesis 5. And so as we turn our attention to God's Word... Let's look at that together. First Genesis 5:21 through 24. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. And then turn into our primary passage of the semester, Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And finally, a familiar verse from Micah 6, 8. He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have not left us to figure things out ourselves. Lord, you have not left us to try to figure out what it means to please you. You have showed us again and again that the faith that pleases you is a faith that looks to you, faith that walks with you. Pray this morning that by your spirit you would teach us about this in the life of Enoch. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this semester, you know, we're studying Hebrews 11. It's called the Hall of Faith by many people. It's this chapter that celebrates the faith of so many Old Testament heroes, what do these people have in common? They all lived by faith in the faithfulness of God. That phrase, by faith, is seen repeatedly throughout the chapter. By faith, they were justified, brought into a right relationship with him. For their faith, they were commended. And though they're not on earth now, they have left us a legacy of faith. So I was thinking about legacy this week, and I thought about the words we use sometimes to summarize a life. And these words sometimes find their way onto tombstones. So I did what we should never do. I Googled it. Great tombstone messages. And <laughs> the results were underwhelming, I'll just tell you that. Here are a few examples from tombstones just to help us wake up this morning. It seems kind of morbid, but um, Merv Griffin, the famous TV host, his tombstone apparently says, I will not be back right after this message. <laughs> this one might, I don't know, get to you businessmen a little bit. He said, I made some good deals and I made some bad ones. I really went in the hole with this one. <laughs> it's just so bad. I found one for one Robert Clay Allison, 1840 to 1887. He never killed a man that did not need killing. <laughs> so we laugh, and sometimes that's what we do in the face of the awkwardness of death. But when it comes to a legacy, the ones that really encourage us are the ones that are sincere and the ones that get 
to our faith. And I don't know if you've ever seen the story of William Borden, who's connected to the Borden dairy family, but it's an amazing story. Um, he left his inheritance, basically, and decided to go do missions. And on the way, trying to get to China to reach Muslims in China, he contracted meningitis in Egypt, studying language, and died. And he wasn't old. But the, the punchline in his tombstone says, apart from faith in Christ, there's no explanation for such a life. And when you think about Enoch, if he had a tombstone, which he doesn't, because the Lord took him, it might have said, he walked with God. So in the whole Bible, this exact phrase, he walked with God, is only used with two men, twice with Enoch in Genesis 5 and once with Noah in Genesis 6. It's quite a legacy. Genesis 5 says Enoch walked with God. Hebrews 11 says Enoch pleased God. And this is just a little thing, but why does Hebrews 11 not pick up the walking language? Why does it switch from Enoch walked with God to Enoch pleased God? And it's a little technical, but perhaps it will help. The Old Testament, you may know, was originally written in Hebrew. Sometime later, that Hebrew was translated into a Greek version. That Greek version is called the Septuagint. came around a little bit before the life of Christ. And so one dynamic in the Septuagint is this desire of the translators to remove the anthropomorphisms, the the giving sort of human qualities to God. So walking, God walking or God, his arm or things like that, at least to these translators, uh, perhaps lack reverence for God. So in the Septuagint, walked with God in Genesis was translated to Enoch pleased God. And so that language makes its way into Hebrews 11 if the author is working with the Septuagint when writing. So for our purposes, the way I like to think about it is we think about Enoch, we can draw this connection. The faith that pleases God is the faith that walks with God. And so what I want to do this morning is try to unpack the significance of walking with God. And I want us to see three things about walking with God. And they're ours, so maybe that'll help you remember. It implies a relationship. Walking with God implies a relationship. It involves a reward. And it makes us radical. So walking with God implies a relationship, involves a reward, and makes us radical. So first, walking with God implies a relationship. I want to take a walk through a few examples of walking in the Bible. Let me just say, this is a really small sample. You could go to an online Bible and just search walk and do it yourself. Look at all the times that walk shows up in the scriptures. Here's just my top 10, just to give you a flavor. Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Genesis 17.1, this is God's word to Abram when he was 99. I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Leviticus 26.12, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. In Deuteronomy 10, 12, we read, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? We see the other side of walking as well in the scriptures. In Kings, we get this again and again. He did, the king did, what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father. Psalm 1 opens with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
Jesus in John 8, 12 says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in Romans 6, 4, when Paul's grappling with our union with Christ, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says it very succinctly, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And in Colossians 1.10, Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So why the emphasis on walking? Why not run? Why shouldn't be running all the time? That's a word that the Bible uses a few times, you know, run this race marked out for you. Walking doesn't sound intense enough, right? This week, the Lord opened my eyes to the beauty of walking. Think about it. If you're a runner, some of you look sporty this morning. If you're a runner, how long do you run each day? I could maybe make it on the treadmill for 10 or 15 minutes. (laughs) How many miles do you run in a day? You might say five, some 10. If you're training for a marathon, maybe more. But if you're a walker, which is nearly all of humanity, how long do we walk each day? If we happen to walk all day long, we'd probably go farther than a runner. So we can run for a few minutes or maybe if we're really great, a few hours, but we walk all day. Walking is a common pace for everyday life. And so the metaphor makes walking with God an all-day, everyday thing. Life with Jesus, not getting up and running a few 40s in the morning or a couple miles in the afternoon. Walking with Jesus means we get to be with him all day, every day. And you know what's even more amazing is that he wants to walk with us. It's really easy to lose sight of this because we talk casually sometimes in our culture about a relationship with God, but the only reason we can walk with him is because he has already walked for us. If you remember Mark 10, 32 through 34, this is an amazing chapter, but right in the middle as all these people are coming to Jesus with their issues and they don't get it, but you know who gets it? Children who are throwing themselves at him and at the end, this blind man who says, have mercy on me and everybody else doesn't get it. And in the middle of this, it says they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Don't miss it. Jesus left heaven and he knew exactly what he was walking into. They didn't know and they were afraid. He knew and he was walking ahead of them. And so he walked every step of this journey in obedience to his father and with love for us. In one of my favorite Christmas songs from the squalor of a borrowed stable, it says, yes, he walked my road and he felt my pain, joys and sorrows that I know so well, yet his righteous steps give me hope again. I will follow my Emmanuel. So he lived a perfect life and he died a terrible death and he walked out of the grave literally so that we could walk with him and know the joy of his fellowship. So walking with God implies a relationship. And we get to spend a lifetime unpacking all the implications of that. So just think about a few implications. Walking with God implies presence. So if you're in Dallas and your friend is in New York, you can both go for a walk, but you're not walking together. 
You have to be near someone, next to someone, with someone to walk with them. In James 4.8, we read, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So walking with God means trusting his promise to dwell with us, to draw near to us. One of the most common commands in scripture is, do not be afraid. And one of the Lord's primary messages to his fearful people throughout the Bible is, I will be with you. One of my favorite examples is Exodus 3, because God's coming to Moses doing all these amazing things, telling him what he's going to do, and it sounds incredible, but really Moses is just scared. (laughs) And he has all these excuses. Moses comes back with these questions, and at one point he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So Moses says, who am I? And God doesn't answer the question. He says, I'll be with you. And that's how he responds to us when we're like, who am I, but what about this? And I'm inadequate and I can't, and I don't know how, I'll be with you. In Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. So think of someone you don't know whom you really respect or admire. And if that person said, hey, I'm coming to town and I want to spend time with you, how would that change your life? You would clear the calendar you would move things around, and you would go for a walk with that person. The Lord himself has come. He wants to spend time with you. He wants to walk with you. How will you respond? So walking with God implies presence. It also implies intimacy. In Amos 3.3, this question comes, do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? In other words, they have a close relationship. Strangers walking together is awkward. If I'm walking in a neighborhood with my dog, I try to be friendly. But if it's a stranger, after we've said hello, it's kind of like someone's got to speed up or slow down across the street because we're not really going to walk much longer together because we're not intimate. You know what I'm saying? And I I think of my wife, Anne, and that's different. All the significant walks we've taken. We took a walk outside on a fall day in 2006. That was our first date. And then in the spring of 2007, we were walking on the beach at Amelia Island. I told her, I love you for the first time. And then later that year on the same beach, we were walking and finally we sat down and I proposed to her, asked her to marry me. And we walked out of HPPC in 2008 as husband and wife. And we've walked so many streets in Dallas and we've walked in other places and different countries. We've walked through joy and sorrow together. I really, I want to walk with her all the time. Our relationship is intentional and intimate. It's a walk. This week I read the story of a Chinese pastor who was imprisoned for his faith. And in in the labor camp, his job became daily to empty the contents of the camp latrine. So every day he'd take this disgusting waste out and spread it on the field as fertilizer. And the smell was so bad that the guards were basically like, you go do that. We're not going to stay close to you. And so the pastor came to love his work because it gave him a few moments alone where he could talk and sing to God, which normally the guards would not let him do. And so the pastor named the dung heap his garden. And while he worked in his garden, he loved to sing the old hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. For he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. So walking with God implies intimacy. Wherever we are, you know, Dallas or the dung heap, (laughs) he is there with us. And walking with God also implies a destination. By faith, we're going somewhere. 
This is a lot different from the world that in a sense doesn't have a purpose, doesn't have anywhere to go. So this going somewhere means personal transformation. As we walk with Jesus, he makes us more like him. So it's a journey of personal transformation, but it also means that there is an ultimate destination. This is not like Lord of the Rings. You know, when Frodo says, we're going in circles, Sam, we've been here before. Christian life really may feel like that, but it's not that. This is not an aimless journey. We're pilgrims on our way home. It's the, the journey to the new heavens and the new earth, this place that God's preparing for us. And when we get there, we'll know the fullness of this great promise of the Bible when he says, he will be our God, we will be his people, and he will be with us. So do you know Jesus as your Lord? In Colossians 2.6, Paul writes, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Do you know his presence? Do you want to live near him? Do you enjoy intimacy with him? Do you want to love him even more? Are you going somewhere with Jesus? Do you want to be where he is forever? If you answer yes to these questions, our next point should really thrill your heart. Second point, walking with God involves a reward. If you look at Hebrews eleven six again, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, this is a fascinating verse because somewhere along the way, philosophers got this idea that if you're seeking a reward, it can actually rob your good act of its goodness. So philosophers like Immanuel Kant started saying the highest moral acts are the ones that are free of any self-interest. You're not trying to get anything out of it for yourself. Now, I don't want to get too philosophical this morning. All I have to do is take you to Chick-fil-A to poke holes in this idea. And I was there at 619 this morning to test this hypothesis. So have you noticed what happens at Chick-fil-A when you order something? You say, thank you. And what do they say? My pleasure. So this morning, you know, sausage biscuit with egg. Thank you. And she said, my pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. It's like they've been programmed to respond this way. Doesn't it bother you that they find pleasure in giving you chicken nuggets? <laughs> Don't they realize their act of serving is tarnished by finding pleasure in it? Oh, so it's your pleasure. You're not really giving me chicken to serve me. You're doing it for you. How dare you? You know why that conversation never happens at the register? Because that is absurd. What I just said is absurd. Like when I give Anne a gift and she says, thank you, what would happen if I said, well, it's my duty as your husband to give you that? <laughs> it wouldn't go well. You know, she actually wants to hear, you're welcome. It's my joy because I love you. And this all seems kind of silly, but there's a life-changing insight here. If you've read anything by John Piper, you've surely encountered it. But let me just share a little taste and try to connect it to Hebrews 11:6 and how faith seeks its reward in God. So these are actually selections from three different books by John Piper because, as he would probably tell you himself, he kind of just says the same thing over and over again. In Desiring God, he writes this, the widespread notion that high moral acts must be free from self-interest is a great enemy of true worship. 
Worship's the highest moral act a human can perform. So the only basis and motivation for it that many people can conceive is the notion of morality as the disinterested performance of duty. But when worship is reduced to disinterested duty, it ceases to be worship. For worship is a feast. Think of worship as a feast or just something you gotta go do on Sunday. This is what I have to do. So in God's passion for his glory, uh, John Piper writes, nothing makes God more supreme and more central in worship than when a people are utterly persuaded that nothing, not money or prestige or leisure or family or job or health or sports or toys or friends, nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their sinful, guilty, aching hearts besides God. This conviction breeds a people who go hard after God on Sunday morning. They're not confused about why they're in a worship service. They do not view songs and prayers and sermons as mere traditions or mere duties. They see them as means of getting to God or God getting to them for more of his fullness. Finally, in Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, he ties this up. It says, Sunday at 11 a.m., Hebrews 11.6 enters combat with Immanuel Kant. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Forever, whoever would draw near to God must believe he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You cannot please God, he says, if you do not come to him as rewarder. Therefore, worship which pleases God is the hedonistic, seeking pleasure, the hedonistic pursuit of God in whose presence is fullness of joy and in whose hand are pleasures forevermore. Quoting Psalm 1611. End John Piper. So you know what honors my wife? Finding my joy in her. It's not selfish. That actually makes her look great and valuable. And you know what honors and glorifies God? Finding our joy in him. Because that's not selfish. That actually makes him look great. If our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, join him forever. Him being the reward is a good thing. So why is it impossible to please God without faith? Because we're created to worship. And if we don't worship him by faith, we will worship something else and put our faith in it. We're treasure hunters. We're always seeking treasure, seeking reward. If we don't believe God rewards those who seek him, if we don't believe that he is the greatest reward, then we will seek other rewards. And these other rewards are worthless by comparison. Land, power, success, money, fame, sex. You could go on and on. They can all be good gifts, but they're all horrible gods. In our pride, what we do is we seek rewards that don't honor God and don't satisfy us. There's a moment in Daniel 4.37 where Nebuchadnezzar kind of comes to his senses and he says, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Do you know the Lord's humbling grace? He humbles us and he opens our eyes to see that he's the greatest reward. He told Abraham in Genesis 15, do not be afraid. I am your shield, your very great reward. So by faith, we turn away from all the empty promises of the world and we turn to him and trust that he will be faithful to satisfy us now and forever. By faith, we walk with him and he is our great reward. And with him, we get all the promises that he's made to us.
This is the faith that pleases him. In the famous words of Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So walking with God uh, involves reward. And lastly, walking with God makes us radical. If you zoom out of the context of Genesis 4 and 5, Enoch's faith really shines all the more. This is one author writes that Enoch shines like a brilliant star above the earthy record of this chapter because there's really not much light in Genesis 5 and 4. In Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. That's where we were last week. Cain's descendants are even more violent than Cain. It's not pretty. At the end of the chapter, all it says is in those days, men, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's the only hint of hope. And then in Genesis 5, we get this genealogy thing. It's got this basic form. When so-and-so had lived a long time, he fathered so-and-so, and then so-and-so lived for this many years after he fathered so-and-so. Thus, all the days of so-and-so were a lot of years, and he died. That's it. That's the whole chapter. It's kind of depressing. He was born, he had a child, he lived this long, and he died. He was born, he had a child, and he died. Brothers, don't you long for more than that? All these men in Genesis 5, and there's nothing about their faith. There's nothing about their contribution to the world except for Enoch. And he's like a floodlight in a dark room. Enoch walked with God. His life was the shortest life in this chapter, but Enoch walked with God. Do we believe that a short life walking with God is better than a long life without him? We don't know any details about Enoch's walk of faith, but we can be sure he was different. So one thing about him in this chapter is he's different. (laughs) There's something different about this guy. Walking with God makes us radical. People probably had questions about the way Enoch was living his life, and they certainly had questions the day God took him out of this life. Where's Enoch? I don't know. (laughs) You found his body? Nope. No idea where he went. It's really incredible. As far as we know, only Enoch and Elijah have shared this experience of God taking them from this life to the next without experiencing death. Enoch's one of those people you'd really want to talk to in glory. You know, tell me about that. What was that like? We tend to think that the world's never been as bad as it is today. I'm not sure I believe that. There have been some pretty rough times in history. Stay tuned for Noah next week. But I understand, you know, people are concerned about darkness in the world. People are concerned. It feels like it's sort of a new day, a new age. Cultural Christianity, Paul Goebel has been talking about this some. Cultural Christianity is all but dead in many of the biggest cities in our country, certainly in other places of the world. Dallas is not, at this point, like New York or Seattle. But Dallas is also not what it was when I was going to Highland Park High School in the 90s. The cultural Christianity here. Uh, is fading. So what do we make of that? What would the Lord have us do? Well, I want to talk to you for a second about John 6, because in John 6, it's kind of like Jesus on the campaign trail. So many of his followers want him to be king. They want him to be the perfect candidate, and he makes these speeches, and they're very odd. You know, it's like he, he gets off the off the topic, so to speak. It's almost like he's trying to run people off. He starts talking about being the bread of life and he says things like, truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And I imagine the people following, whispering to each other, that's not gonna look good on a sign, Jesus. (laughs) So in John 6, 60, it says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
Jesus, you're doing great things. Keep doing great things. People are excited. Why do you have to say that? Please, not the bread of life speech again. It's too radical, Jesus. So John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They're out. They're done. Too much, Jesus. I'm going, that's the door. And this is a dynamic in our culture. If it's no longer cool to walk with Jesus, walk away. If it's no longer cultural to be Christian, go with the culture, not with Christ. You know what's amazing? Jesus is not desperate for followers. In John 6, 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Think about this moment. All these people are literally walking away from Jesus. Like, all of you but that table start walking out the door. And it's like, okay, Tommy and company, y'all want to go too? You know, they're, they're going. Do you want to go too? So it's risking the whole thing blows up right here. In John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, Jesus didn't say it to Peter then, but he said it another time. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Brothers, has the Father revealed to you the identity of his Son? Has he given you the gift of faith to see that Jesus has the words of eternal life? That he's the Holy One of God. You have nowhere else to go. So when we see Jesus with eyes of faith, we want to walk with him no matter the cost. And walking with him makes us radical because it connects us with him. And as he remakes us, our lives should look different in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, in the way that we date, in the way that we do marriage, in the way that we parent, in the way that we work, in the way we use our time and talent and treasure. It's so easy to live by fear. And on the surface, it would seem easier not to live by faith. You think Abel worshipped by faith and Cain murdered him. Enoch walked by faith and who knows what happened to him apart from God taking him. Noah worked by faith and surely people mocked him when he's building a boat in the desert. And so we worry, if I really walk with God, what will happen to me? But Enoch's life reminds us that death has lost its sting. The Lord just took him. He didn't experience death. He passed from life to life. That's probably not going to be our story. But we know that Jesus has tasted death for us. So by faith, we are united with him in his victory. And death has lost its sting. So it shall just be a doorway for those who have faith in Christ. Life will be the final word for us too. So we walk by faith in this life. And one day, that faith will turn to sight when we see him face to face. So brothers, what do we have to fear? when it comes to walking with God. Jesus didn't put his light inside of us so that we would hide it. He put his light inside us so that we would shine like stars in a dark world, so that we would stand out like Enoch. He's given us everything we need to walk with him. And as we walk with him, we get to be his witnesses. And the world should take notice. So if you feel lonely, just remember the men sitting around the table with you. And there's probably other men in your life too. Trust the Lord's promise in Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. We need each other. 
as we learn to walk with the Lord. And if you feel weary, remember the spirit living inside you. Trust the Lord's promise in Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need the daily renewal of the Holy Spirit to keep us walking. And if you're still not sure what kind of life pleases the Lord, just hear Micah 6, 8 one more time. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning the road that Jesus walked for us. Thank you that he was out ahead walking. He was walking the perfect life and he was dying a sacrificial death for us. Lord, I pray that we would hear the invitation this morning and see the joy and the reward of walking with you to turn away from all the things that don't satisfy and to find life and joy and peace and everything in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to see where we can grow and cultivate our walk with you and with one another. Uh, we pray that our lives would be uh, lights in this world. So wherever you send us today, Lord, I pray that we would walk with you, uh, that our relationship with you would not just be something we think about from time to time or running some spiritual sprints here and there, but more and more continual walk, walk by the Spirit. So Spirit, come and teach us what it means to commune with with you all, all day long until we see Christ face to face. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.